Well, we are in week six of our um, time in the Minor Prophets and super thankful for what God's doing, how he's opening our eyes to um, the, his justice, his righteousness. And then today we're actually going to look at how even his vengeance and his wrath um, are both like hard news, really hard news, and good news for those who would find their refuge in him. Um, it's been really, I don't know, for me it's been eye-opening because I haven't spent a lot of time in the Minor Prophets. And some of the things that we're hearing, you're like, man, that's not, that's not a loving and kind and merciful God. That sounds like that, that's a God that, that really um, pays back what people have sown. Matter of fact, it's been word for word. Some of the promises is that you will reap what you what you've sown. And so it's been it's been hard. It's been difficult to sit under some of that and realize that that the sin that you and I have in our hearts that maybe we don't express in the same way that um, the people of God did at that time. Maybe we haven't taken advantage of our brothers. Maybe we haven't necessarily scoffed at them. Uh, maybe we haven't been violent towards them, but there's something in our heart that would make me the center, make me the center of the world, make me what it all revolves around. And God's proclamation against people has been because of their pride. Like that's, that's the one theme. We've, we've seen it expressed and played out in a lot of ways, but one of the things that we talk about here is, is the idea that in the, in the garden, the first sin was that on my own I can live. I don't need to be obedient to God. I don't need to rest in his rule and his reign. I can live outside of that bounds. And so Eve listened to the serpent who deceived her. Adam listened to Eve and and partook. He was the first partaker of the fruit also with her. And so in in their pride, they rejected God's rule. And so what we see is that that sin continues to permeate throughout all of life, both in the life of Judah and Israel, the, the chosen people of God that are being prophesied to during this time, and in the neighbors of those nations, whether it be Edom or today we're going to look at the Assyrian Empire, who was um, very prominent at the time. Today in the book of Nahum, we hear the declaration that God is against those who put their trust in their own power, strength, cunning, their own might, their own wisdom, God is against them. I'm going to let that sit for just a second because we then can think about how many times this week I have put my trust, my hope, in my own abilities. And that's, that's really what all of that sums up into is that those who trust in their own ability, their own rescue, their own ability to get better or do better... God is against them, and we're going to see some really strong language to the people of Nineveh. He's against Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire because they have practiced evil and wickedness. And you and I would probably be the first to say, I'm not, I don't think evil sounds like a strong word for me. And, and as I think about all of you, I don't, very rarely does evil come to mind, okay? And hopefully, that, you know, it's reciprocated some. But the reality is that this evil, this, 
This thing that God hates so much is, the, is our pride and our arrogance in ourselves rather than a total dependence on him and his salvation and his refuge. He's against Nineveh. And some of you are saying, wait, I know enough about the minor prophets to know that Nineveh is actually in Jonah. And you're right, because a lot of us have seen veggie tales. That's true. The proclamation that Jonah is making is to the people of Nineveh. He's making that proclamation about 100 years before Nahum comes and makes this proclamation. Because, see, while some of the people did repent at the time when Jonah came, and we have that recorded for us, the next ruler began to establish his, his own righteousness, his own justice, his strength was placed in his own abilities, and we see that continuing in this Assyrian empire that just continues to grow and conquer and destroy those around them. So the, the proclamation in Nahum, and, and we're going to read it, it's, it's hard because it's, it's very um, wrath-filled. It's very vengeance-filled toward the people who are not abide in God. But what we're also going to see is that Nahum, which is a name, and that name actually means comfort, right? And we're going to wrestle with this because as you read it, as you go through these three chapters, you're like, I don't see a lot of comfort there. I see death and destruction and promised uh, judgment for the people of Nineveh. I don't see a lot of comfort there. Well, the comfort is that the promise of God to his people, he's, he's faithful to rescue anyone who would take refuge in him. Anyone who would take refuge in him. It's a, it's a rescue from violent oppressors, which if you know your history, the Assyrians are, are renowned for their violence, their destruction, the way that they would come in and, and not just assimilate a culture, but disband a culture and kill off people. Send them away. So God's rescue from violent oppressors, his restoration of what was lost. We're going to see in here, a promise to Jacob, listen, the things that you have lost will be restored to you. But most of all, we're going to see his justice to the evil and the violent and the proud. So today I pray that we'd hear both the promise and the warning, and that only happens by the power of the Spirit. So let's ask God to do that. God, we thank you that we have um, the book of Nahum recorded for us. God, I pray for clarity. Clarity in our hearing, clarity in my speaking. Clarity in the words that are written for us, knowing that those words have been translated and transcribed, and yet we have the promise that that these words, this proclamation has been given for us today, even as it was given for Nineveh almost 3,000 years ago. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see both your beauty in your justice and in your righteousness. Lord, may we also see and hear your grace and your kindness to those who would find their refuge in you. And Lord, may it stir in us 
action. May it stir in us proclamation. May it stir in us joy-filled going to people that need to hear the good news. God, would you do that by the power of your word and through the working of your spirit today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, in our reading today, um, we have this, this beginning of Nahum. And these first couple of verses really describe the character of God, which is almost always what these prophets would do. They would, they would remind the people, whoever it is that they were making their proclamation to, they would remind them of who God is, what he has done, how he has rescued. They would remind the people of the character of God. And so we begin that with this oracle of Nahum. In verses 2 and 3, it says, The Lord is jealous and avenging God. He's the jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. That's, that's who our God is. That's who... Scripture says he is. We so often just get, we, we hope that on the back side of that, that there's going to be this, and he is gracious and kind. And it's true, he, he is gracious and kind, but he's also wrathful and avenging. He, he hates sin. He He doesn't clear the guilty. He knows that our sin is within us. This is the character of God. Jealous, avenging, wrathful. We know this because when God reveals himself to his people in Exodus, he, he tells Moses who he is. Clearly. Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. We know that Moses met God on Mount Sinai because when he comes down, he's radiating. Like there's, there's something about him that's changed. He's been given the Ten Commandments and he's spoken to God and God has told him who he is. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There you have the fullness of God. You have a God who is gracious and compassionate. But why is he gracious and compassionate? Is he gracious and compassionate because they're living the right way? Is he gracious and compassionate because they're... they're Pleasing him? No, he's gracious and compassionate because that's who his character is. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he won't clear the guilty. And then, then at the end it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Like God is a righteous God and we don't, we don't get that. We want to change God into this thing that, that 
meets all of our needs and all of our desires, and he's a God of our own making and choosing. So when he comes and he says things like, I am a vengeful God, I am a wrathful God, I'm a jealous God, we have a hard time with that because that doesn't fit into the image that we've created in our minds. But as the created being, we don't get to tell the creator who he is. He actually gets to tell us who we are. That's hard for us. Like we don't, I don't know about you, I don't like being told what to do by anybody. It's just, I don't get really excited about it. And yet if God is everything that he says he is in scripture, then he's the only one who gets to tell us who he is and who we are. And that's what he's doing here. He's reminding us of who he is. You see echoes of Exodus 34 in Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Remember, the, the prophets would come, and their role of the prophet is to remember and to remind. He's to remember who God is, because obviously the people have forgotten. Or in this case, Nineveh may never have known. Generations have gone by since Jonah was there proclaiming who God was, And so maybe they've never known. And so Nahum is coming and he's telling them who God is. He's remembering who God is and he's reminding. He's vengeance and wrath to those against him. Why is he vengeance and wrath? Like if all we had were two and three, we're left with a really angry, mean God. But what we find is that he's vengeful and wrathful because they have done what is evil. If you look at 3.1... The proclamation to Nineveh is woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. We have um, recorded for us what the Assyrian Empire was like. And it was, it was pretty bad. Like some, some of the things that we have, we, we think of um, really bad empires, really bad Places, and we begin to think of maybe, maybe Germany during um, the Nazis is, is one that would come to mind. Maybe we have some ideas of the uh, first people to America who annihilated people groups. Maybe we have, um, I, I don't know, maybe the Romans come to mind. But the Assyrian Empire, we don't think about a lot, but they were really, really bad. They would kill whole people groups for no issue except that they wanted their land and just annihilate them. This idea in verse 1 of chapter 3, woe to the bloody city, it's, it's the empire that's built on the blood of innocent people. And so we have the reason for God's anger and His wrath and His vengeance. And so, what we're going to find is that this is good news for the people that are being annihilated by this people group. This is good news for everyone else. That God is going to come and he's going to judge and he's going to destroy because everyone else has been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire spanned from uh, close to um, like Iran, Iraq of modern day over towards the Persian Gulf, covered all of the Middle East, 
all the way down into Egypt, which was a powerful country or powerful nation at that time. Right? Everything was covered and taken over by this Assyrian Empire except for Judah. But even the northern empire, even, even the northern nation of Israel had been destroyed and taken over by the Assyrian Empire. And so we have this, this listing of, you know, all of the nations that have been destroyed by this empire. And it's huge. And I, we don't, I don't think, like even in my little bit of study, I don't have a good grasp on how dominating this empire was over the known world at the time. And you say, well, if that's true, Joel, like why don't we know much about it? Like why do we have stories like 300 that talks about, you know, these other, the Greeks and, and the Persians and the Babylonians and we have plenty of stuff about the Romans. How come we never hear too much about the Assyrian Empire? Well, what we're going to find out is that when God destroys Assyria using the Babylonian army, like he wipes them out. They're gone. But for two, maybe 300 years, this empire was dominant over the known world. And what they would do is they would collect things. And so in, in the capital, they had all of these incredible uh, artifacts and they were known for uh, some of their, their ability to use water, creating aqueducts. They had all these immaculate gardens. They had a zoo. That's pretty cool. I, I don't think about ancient civilizations having a zoo. I, think, I always think that they're all zoos, but I guess they actually had a zoo. Um, and so you had all of these things that were being collected while they were wiping out the people that had given it to them. And so, God is against them. He says in 114, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. No more shall it become this great thing. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. Vile. Deserving of wrath and destruction. How is that grave to be made? Well, if you love history, if you love war, if uh, you get excited about like the tactical stuff, you might enjoy Nahum chapters 2 and 3 because it, Nahum goes in and he describes, listen, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to be destroyed. God is against Nineveh. And so they will receive his wrath and vengeance. We see it in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Behold, I am against you. It's not where we want to be. We don't want to be on the other side of God. We don't want to be against God. The reality of what happens to the Assyrian Empire is that they are utterly destroyed by both the Babylonian and Mede armies that team up to take care of this, this empire that's so bad. The destruction that takes place looks a lot like Nahum 2. The mighty armies came and they laid siege to Nineveh in about 612 B.C., 
Verse two, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it says, The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the will. The siege tower is set up. So in 612 B.C., we talked about it, the Babylonians and the Medes lay siege to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of this Assyrian empire. It had been moved um, towards the end of the empire from Assur to um, Nineveh. And Nineveh sits on the Tigris River. And so it has this great um, natural fortifications, right? The river protected it. People couldn't... Um, come against it because it has huge, huge walls built right on the river. But here God's telling Nahum, telling Nineveh through Nahum, what's going to happen to Nineveh. He's going to destroy it. He's going to bring this army against it. Now, I'm sure that Judah in that moment is thinking, yes, we get to go and we get to destroy those guys who have destroyed us. But the reality is that God in his sovereignty used another Empire, the Babylonian Empire, that's actually going to come and they're going to be the ones that take Judah from God's people and send them into exile. But God uses that Babylonian Empire, and so the warriors that are being talked about here are the Babylonian warriors that God uses. We have an idea of how God moves and how God works, and I just want you to know that our idea is often wrong. We think that we know what he's going to do. And I'm sure that Judah, as they're reading this, is, is hoping and thinking that they're going to be the ones that are going to repay Assyria for what they've done. The reality is that God uses the Babylonian Empire to crush the Assyrian Empire. These great armies that are coming against Nineveh to lay siege to them. Nahum points to Assyria conquering the city of Thebes. If you read in Nahum verse 3, 8, or chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Are you better than Thebes that set by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Like, you can get lost in some of the history here. It's pretty amazing. The Assyrian Empire went and conquered Egypt and the Nile and the, the sweet, fertile delta region. And one of the things that happens is farther down the Nile, or farther up the Nile, is a city called Thebes. And it's like the crowning jewel of the Egyptians at that time. But Thebes couldn't withstand the Assyrian army attacking it, even though it's it's right on the Nile and has all of these fortifications. And God is saying, listen, you thought that Thebes was going to be protected by its water and its walls, just like you think you're going to be protected by your water and your walls at Nineveh, the Tigris River. So he reminds them in chapter 3, and then in chapter, going back to chapter 2, we see in verses 6 through 8, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts, Nineveh is like a pool whose water runs away, halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. According to most historians, one of the major reasons for the downfall of Nineveh 
is that the Tigris flooded into the city. Now, they're not sure whether that was because the uh, assaulting armies, you know, shifted the waters and made it shut off their aqueducts and then reopen them or not. That's one theory. But whether it was a supernatural thing or whether it was just human work, either way, Nahum is telling them ahead of time that this is how the city's going to fall. God is telling them, I am coming at you with vengeance and wrath and destruction. Here's how I'm going to do it. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that this is fulfilled just like God says it's going to be fulfilled. And then we see in verses 9 through 10 that the city is, or in verse 9, that the city is plundered. All the wealth that the emperors I'm going to read this wrong. Ashurnasapal and Sennacherib had collected and stored in their palace in Nineveh. It was on display, and all of that is plundered and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. It's taken from them. The destruction of Nineveh is such that Nineveh is no more. For, for thousands of years, no one knew where Nineveh was. It wasn't until the 1800s, which is when you look at the grand scope of time, that's really recent, that they found Nineveh and found some of the artifacts that were there. That's how full and all-encompassing God's wrath upon Nineveh was. It wiped them away, and they were gone. The destruction and annihilation of the mighty Assyrian Empire. Those who trusted in their own strength, those who were vile and evil, God was against and he destroys. I know, Nahum, comfort. How is any of this comfort? It's comfort to Jacob. It's comfort to Judah, God's people. Remember that, that this is being written and proclaimed as a, a woe to Nineveh, but it's being proclaimed to Judah, God's people. It's a reminder that God is faithful, even as they are being ransacked, even as they are being constantly assaulted by the Assyrian Empire, and God is preserving and keeping a remnant God is promising that justice will be done. Yes, I am slow to anger and I'm long-suffering, but I, I am just and I'm good. And one day, evil will be repaid. He's a comfort to those who take refuge in him. The people of God take comfort in their God and in his salvation. They take comfort in his restoration. We see that in Nahum 2.2. 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God has not forgotten how the Assyrian Empire has taken advantage of and, and attacked and plundered his people both in the northern kingdom of Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah. He remembers and he's promised that he will restore. 
This oracle was given not, it was given to Judah, not to Nineveh. Nineveh had already been warned and called to repentance, as we're going to see next week when Matt preaches on Jonah. A hundred years before this time, Jonah had come and he said, listen, our, our God is good, he's gracious and kind, if you would just repent. And, and maybe some people repented. It, it looks like some people repented. And God saved. Yet a century continues on, and now they've begun to trust in their own ability, their own power, their own warrior mentality. Judah is the last remnant that's being preserved, but their hope is wavering. And so God, in his kindness, brings Nahum to remind that God does not forget. God is vengeful and he's wrathful and he's going to repay them for what they are doing. Judah hopes in the one who will bring peace where there has only been war and desolation for their whole lifetime. You think about it. Anybody that's hearing Nahum speak, they've been surrounded by this Assyrian empire their whole life. And Nahum is coming with a promise that that reign is going to end. That there will be peace where there's only been war. Nahum 1.15, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. As you hear that, you may begin to hear echoes of Isaiah's prophecy. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then when we looked at Mark and the, and the gospel there and the proclamation of God's good news, that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy, well, God is fulfilling his prophecy against Nineveh right now. He's destroying them. And that's good news for God's people. But there's a bigger problem than just Nineveh. There's, this, there's an evil that's within all of, all of us who are prideful and arrogant. How will that be destroyed? How will that be wiped out? What's the good news there? If everyone deserves to be punished for the evil that's in our hearts... Where is the good news? The good news is that we have a refuge. It's not just a New Testament refuge. You look at the the Old Testament, you look at the psalmist, and what is their hope? Their hope is a refuge by trusting in God, Yahweh. Hold your finger and Nahum, go to Psalm 91. Or scroll way back. Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see, the trust that David had was not in his own ability or even in what God was doing through him, but his trust was in Yahweh. His trust was in the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. He was his refuge and fortress. Not walls, not rivers, not armies, but a trust in God. Verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 91. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. Verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. 
When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I love that part in verse 14, because he knows my name. I'm not talking about how when we introduce ourselves to somebody, they give us their name and now we know it. I'm talking about that, that very biblical knowing that says that I'm going to put all of my hope and all of my trust in you. That's what it means when he says, because you know my name. Because he holds fast to me in love. That, that because, like that, so the reason that God is doing these things, the reason that he's protecting him, delivering him, answering him, being with him in trouble, rescuing him, honoring him, why is all of that happening? Because the cause of that rescue is the deep knowing not an abstract understanding. A deep and abiding knowing and trust. It's a knowing that's not simply of our mind, but it's a knowing that is our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength. As soon as we begin with that language, it helps us to remember again Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's what it means to know, to know the name. That his words are written on our heart. I don't trust in my own abilities. I don't trust in circumstances. Circumstances come and go, but the Lord, Yahweh, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one that we can put our trust in. For those who have come to God as their refuge, we ought to be filled with unending joy and gratitude for our salvation this morning. There should be joy that, like, what I deserve, I am not being given. That in my pride and in my arrogance, I deserve the wrath of God. But I have one who has come and who has taken that wrath for me. And that, that's not to lay guilt and condemnation on us. That is to lay joy faithfulness, obedience in our hearts because God has saved. God saved Judah by annihilating the Assyrian Empire. He used the Babylonian Empire to do it, but it was God who did it. And God saves today. Paul picks up this idea in Romans. Listen, the, the evil that was in the hearts of the people of Nineveh he talks about it. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. In Romans 3, 9 through 18, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As we read that, and we read Nahum talking about the people of Nineveh, there, it's very, there's a correlation there. But Paul's saying, listen, it's not just 
the people outside of the Jewish community. He's, he's not saying, listen, are we any better? He's, he's saying, no, according to Scripture, we all sit under the law and we are all found guilty. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Continues. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Accountable to God. God is righteous, and what we're seeing is that we are not. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here's the good news. It's all good news. Here's the rescue. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the beauty here. The one has come who walked perfect righteousness, who rested in and depended on God completely, God the Father completely. The thing that you and I could not do He has done for us. He's lived righteous. Righteousness. The other thing that you and I could not do, pay for our own sin, He has done for us in the person of Jesus. It says that He's the propitiation. He's the payment for our sin. God in His divine forbearance in verse 25 passed over former sins. But upon Jesus was laid all of those sins that have been forgiven, that have been passed over. And so God punished his son in our place. For anyone who would find their refuge through hope and trust in the God Yahweh, their sins are laid on Jesus. And it shows his righteousness. All of this, we're like, man, Joel, that's like, come on. A lot of doom and gloom today. We can't read Nahum and suddenly like paint it into the picture that we want where it's this really sweet thing and everybody smiles at the end. No, like a whole empire is destroyed because of their sin. And it doesn't end there, you see, because then the Babylonians come and they destroy that empire and then they take over Judah, God's people, and disperse them and send them into exile. And, and this cycle continues to happen. So what is the hope that we would have? What is the hope that anyone would have in the God Yahweh? It's that He's faithful, that He would do this thing and rescue and save. And it's not just a literal momentary rescue and saving of a nation. It's a, it's a full, complete salvation of a people that includes us today. All of humanity rescued from their selfishness and their pride by the one who is selfless and humble 
and laid down his life for you and I. That is good news. That is sweet, and it should be sweet on our lips to say, yes, I deserve that, but I have not been given that because of who Jesus is. Today, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That is a promise that we have. But do we acknowledge that God is vengeful and wrathful, that he does pay people for the evil that we've done unless we are in Christ? And then he has paid that evil too on his son. Do we sit there or do we just move right through it? Because I think if, if we allow that to, to really resonate in our hearts, it's really going to drive us to go to those who are broken and lost and who need this good news. I have to repent for just not letting that be part of my life. I don't want to think about it. I just want to gloss right through it and just get to the good stuff. And then God's given me all of these other truths. And they, they are true. I have life. I have joy. I have peace. I have all the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in my life. And it's beautiful. But at what cost? At the cost of the Savior giving his life for me. So that I did not... I do not get the punishment that I deserve. But there are others that are perishing and they're going to be, they're going to sit under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But do I care? And I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt-laden us. I'm just saying, do we recognize that and does that begin to drive some of the way that we live where our lives are no longer about our own comfort, our own approval, our own feelings of satisfaction, but they're about the glory of God. And I think it is. Like I look at you guys and I, and I see what God is doing and there are places where we are beginning to move out of what makes us comfortable and go into places where they need to hear the good news and I'm thankful for that. I see the work of the Spirit in our lives and it's beautiful and it's really good. But is the reality of judgment something that we think about or do we just move through into grace and mercy? And so I just say, listen, we have to have the whole thing. We have to have the book of Nahum in our Bible. We have to have the book of Nahum in our hearts. It needs to resonate with us so that we say, listen, I know that what you're doing you think is good, but... According to God, it's sinful. And, and the same thing for me, but by grace, He saved me out of that. He's given me a new desire, a new heart, where I'm not looking for my own, to my own selfishness, my own satisfaction anymore, but I'm looking to His glory, and He can do that to you too. Like, is that what's going on in our hearts at work? At school? With our friends? I hope so. I'm praying that, it's, that it would be. Because, man, that's, that's beautiful. And that's going to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. A hope and a refuge in God. I think that it doesn't because we, we don't realize the cost of sin. And we don't realize the gift that we've been given in Jesus. 
we talk about that a lot, that you have this, this chart maybe or, or this graph where you begin to realize like what is it that is sin and what is the righteousness of God and as you grow in the understanding of both those things, the cross looms larger. Like it gets bigger. It's, it's big enough to, to reconcile sinners like you and me to a holy God who's way more holy and righteous than I can even scratch the surface of in my very limited finite mind. Jesus has done that. And if he's done that for me, now I have this good news that should, should drive everything that I do. And so we can read a book of woe, an oracle, and a vision to a, a people that God is going to crush and destroy, and it can be a comfort to us. Because it points to a God who saves, a God who rescues. So I pray that that would be true for us today, and that we would rejoice in the goodness of God. That that goodness of God would drive us to go and to share that goodness with others. Not just others outside of this room. We need to be telling each other, like, yeah, I see that in you, but God is changing you, and it's sweet, and it's good, and it's beautiful. Because as we begin to see that, we, now we ha- even have more impetus and more practice of sharing that good news with each other that we can go out and share it with people who have never heard it before. God, would you do that in us today, we ask. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for the book of Nahum. God, it, it, 40 minutes talking about it is not going to explain the whole thing. It's not going to mean that we, we know what Nahum was saying. We know who he was saying it to. So Lord, I pray that this would um, stir our hearts to read more of your word, to see more of your character, to see that you are righteous and just, that you repay evil, that you punish the wicked and that that would point us to Jesus who took the punishment for wicked people. Who was utterly destroyed in his body. That we would be rescued. That we would be saved. God, fill us with the joy of our salvation today. I thank you that even today, you've reminded me that I am undeserving of your grace and your mercy, and yet you've poured it out on me because you poured out your wrath on your son. God, I pray that that would be good news. I pray that that would fill our hearts with joy. Pray that we would take communion with joy and with celebration this morning because the one who didn't deserve it took it for us so that we might stand in the righteousness of Christ. God, I pray that we would have the reality of a, of a judgment, the reality of your justice. God, and that would compel us to be 
um, proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. We ask all of this in your name today. Amen.